Dr. Don Crum has been a pastor, a missionary, working in government. Uh, if you were here this afternoon, you heard some fascinating stories. And I hope that it not only wows you, and, and uh, it, it, those, those are stunning stories to me, but they need to provoke us and encourage us that God wants to place us in places of influence. And regardless of what you do for a living, God wants to use that as a platform for his kingdom. And so those are opportunities. We're all missionaries. We're all preachers. We just do that in different settings. And so uh, it's been so good. And uh, so Don is going to speak tonight. And, and uh, Don is uh, at the tail end of his governmental career, I believe, and doing a lot of uh, training with leaders training and uh, pouring into governmental leaders, presidents, counseling them. And we're going to have Don back. We'll have him come back and do an expanded version of what he unpacked this afternoon. Uh, we got just enough to make me hungry for more. I felt like I ate a bunch of chips and I didn't have any water. I was thirsty. And uh, so he'll bring the water next time. But uh, I want you to give a good hand for Dr. Don Crum. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Be seated in his presence. Amen. So appreciate, love the worship here and uh, such a purity, you know, just a purity. When you travel, and Bill will tell you this, when you travel and you're in a lot of churches, you know, you see a lot of things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Right? I've seen nothing but good here, and uh, the worship has been on a powerful level, and uh, you know, I was thinking about the difference between thanks, praise, and worship while we were worshiping, and I thought, we thank God for what he's done in the past, we praise him for what he's doing now, but we always worship him for who he is, right? And you are people who know how to worship. So I commend you for that, and it's been an honor to be here, especially with our dear friends Bill and Faye Beyer, and uh, walking with them together in some very strategic places. Um, I have such respect for both of them, and uh, hopefully one day I'll introduce my wife to you, Sherry. We've been married 47 years. And uh, I've served the Lord in ministry in one form or another for over 50 years, 51 years. And uh, so Sherry will come with me someday. I know you'll get a chance to. She's the best part of me, by the way. I mean, really, she's wonderful. She's wonderful. I get to carry her bags wherever we go. So, so I want to uh, talk about, you know, today I was talking about the priestly and the kingly anointings of God, which has to do with our identity. Remember when Jesus had the conversation with the disciples? I kind of picture it in my mind that they were sitting around a campfire in uh, Matthew chapter 16, and he asked them, who do men say that I am? And it was just kind of time with the guys, you know. And uh, they start to give some kind of answer. And one of the disciples said, some say you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Others say you're one of the other prophets. And Simon Peter, at that time Simon Barjona, was sitting there. I love Simon. I probably relate to him more than any of the other disciples. You know, Simon was the guy who always said it before he thought about it. 
He was the disciple kind of with the, the foot-shaped mouth, you know, and I like that, you know. And so Simon sits there and, and ponders what Jesus is asking, but really Jesus doesn't care about what people are saying about him. He wants to know what those guys thought about him. And so he rephrases the question and he says, but who do you say that I am? And that was the moment when Simon blurts out without even thinking, he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And everything got quiet. And Jesus commended him by saying, well done, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So at that conversation, there were actually three identities that were revealed and established. Number one, the most important one, was the identity of the Lord himself. That that was a moment of revelation that changed everything. When the disciples began to actually see who he was, because remember they were followers for a long time, but really didn't become believers until quite some time into the journey. But this was a moment of revelation of his true identity. And, but not just his identity was revealed. It was then that Jesus said, No longer, Simon, are you Simon Barjona. But from this point, I'm giving you a new identity and even a new name. For now, you from this point are Peter. Which means not just a rock like a stone, but a bedrock that you can build structures on top of it. And so Peter's own identity began, he got a name change, but a whole new identity. Now, you and I both know that Jesus wasn't talking about building his church on Peter as a person, right? But it was upon the rock of revelation of true identity of Jesus himself, Messiah Yeshua, but also upon the rock of revelation of Simon's identity. So he's talking about building a church upon that rock of understanding and revelation. And he says that this church I'm going to build, the Greek word is ekklesia, is going to be so powerful, it's going to be an advancing church that when it comes into the structures of darkness and to the main gates of darkness, there won't be enough power and inertia to hold out this advancing church. So Jesus was actually using military terminology of a tactical advancement. And not that he said, you will wait, and when the enemy comes to you, that then you'll have that power and authority, but said he will, God will build a church that will advance into enemy territory as a tactical advancing army. And when it comes into the strongholds of darkness, the gates that are locked, by the way, Jesus says, here are keys. He gives Simon the keys of the kingdom. Don't worry, when gates are locked, you have the keys in your pocket to unlock those gates. The word in the Greek for that gate is a stronghold. It's like the gate of a walled city, a king's palace, or a prison. Very fortified. So Jesus called us to advance. The, today I mentioned a couple of phrases. Um, strategic assessment. And we have to learn how to make strategic assessment in order to make tactical advancement. 
So God needs us to see strategically the lay of the battlefield and to understand the components of the battlefield and even to understand things about our enemy. Not that we ever worship him, obviously no. We never give undue or inappropriate attention to the enemy, but we do need to pay attention to his systems, his structures. Because remember, before Satan was Satan, he was Lucifer in heaven, right? He had a lot of time on his hands. You know what he was doing? He was observing the structuring and architecture of God. When he was in the throne room, the capital of God's government called his kingdom, he was observing the perfect holy order Everything in heaven is in perfect order and a perfect structure full of light. So one day there was rebellion found in the heart of Lucifer. He got out of order and out of orderness cannot remain in a perfect order, so he had to go. So what did he do? He came into the earth not, a, not able to duplicate the structures of God, the architecture of God, because he has no ability to do that because all of God's architecture is holy and perfect and precise. So the best thing he can do is structure his darkness in the earth a little bit like the structuring of God. He can't do it perfectly. It is an evil structuring. Everything Satan has built in the earth has structure, form, and architecture to it. And if you could see, and this is what I'm talking about, about uh, strategic assessment. If you can see how the enemy builds, then you'll be better equipped to take the fight to darkness rather than wait till the enemy comes to you. See, I'm not interested in picking a fight, but guess what? The enemy brought the fight to you. I mean, he threw the first punch. And my daddy and my mama taught me that as in, in school, if the guy throws the first punch, I can punch back. <laughs> right? Well, the devil has thrown the first punch. So you're well within your rights and within your duty and responsibility to throw the counterpunch. But God needs to train us how to be smarter, sharper, more alert, and more strategic and tactical in how we think and how we view things. So I want to talk about that a little bit tonight, and I want to start by telling you a timeline. Because in America... We are where we are today as a nation because of our history. There's a timeline I'm going to share with you that on that timeline, there was a point where darkness had an advantage and made a significant entry over America, a specific day that it happened. So I want to talk to you about that because if you understand that that's how the devil has has gotten an advantage over our nation, then you will know how to undo that. You will know how to come against that and be the ecclesia that Jesus said he was going to build upon the rock of understanding and revelation of who he is, number one, and who we are in him. I tell pastors around the world in many nations, if you, will, if you can understand two things, you're going to do well for the kingdom of God. Understand who God is within you, 
That's the most important thing. But the second thing is also important. Understand who you are in God. And it's an understanding of our identity that is important. Because identity and credentials give you right of access, which then takes you into opportunities to have an advantage to conquer darkness. Now, how far, today and this afternoon, I was talking about this thing called the royal dynasty, which is just simply the house of God's authority, the bloodline of his kingliness that passes right on through to you and me, right? So David, when it says, God said, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David, and what's going to happen, it's going to trigger something in the earth where my people are going to operate in authority, and it will even lead the unbelievers into a place of salvation because they will see your successes as you operate as priest and king, and somebody's going to start asking questions like, how are you so blessed? How are you so successful? God's always had Israel that would provoke the unbelievers and the Gentiles to jealousy because Israel has been blessed by God, right? He needs a people, an ecclesia, that he can bless but also use authoritatively through humility and brokenness, not through pride and arrogance, but through humility and brokenness. The humility of the priestly is much needed to counterbalance the strength of the kingly. However, on the other side of that coin, the priestly needs the punch of the kingly to get things done. Priests make petitions while kings make decrees. And there's a difference, right? We have to know when to be a priest and when to be a king, right? We just have to know in those critically important moments when we come into a situation that you know you've got to have a strength of the kingly to overcome that situation, whether it be on a personal level in your own life or even in your family or even in the nation. So we need to learn how to operate, when to be a priest, when to be a king. So it requires the kingly anointing of God to undo what darkness has structured in the earth, right? So the timeline is this. I'm going to roll back all the way, and don't worry, I'm not going to take time for all of this, but I'll give you the, the beginning point of the timeline and where we are today. 1950s, mid-1950s through uh, into the 60s. The Soviet Union was experimenting with the occult in the area of intelligence gathering on the United States. In other words, they were using psychics who were occultists who knew how to go into the spirit world with demonic assistance that would empower them for remote viewing and astral projection techniques that by the end of the 50s, they were so good at it that literally they could astral project themselves from Moscow to Washington, enter the Pentagon, and stand behind generals seated at conference tables, read classified information, go back into their bodies in Moscow and report to their superiors word for word what they had read we discovered a hemorrhaging of secret information 
that was getting to the Soviets through this methodology of using the occult. Now, we also had some spies that were rooted out of our system and were caught and prosecuted, but this was information that they didn't even have access to. This was a supernatural uh, espionage operation by the Soviets against the United States. And I would probably dare guess that most of you never even heard of that. Now, I know not to tell you secret things, and I'm not going to tell you anything classified. Secret classification, uh, secret, top secret, and above, uh, but come under review every 10 years. So <clears throat> at the 10-year marks, uh, a secret situation or report is brought into review, and usually those things are either maintained at their classification level or changed, lowered to a lower classification or are or declassified. So I'm not going to tell you anything classified. I could go to jail for that, and you don't need to know that for your own sake. So, but I am going to talk to you about Project Stargate, which was a top-secret program back in the 70s, actually beginning in the 60s, late 60s, as an attempt of the U.S. government to try to outdo the Soviets' psychic program. You see, what we should have done as a nation, when we found out the Soviets were running this spiritual, occultic operation of intelligence gathering on our nation, what we should have done is humbled ourselves before God and cried out to Him, and God would have gladly given our nation and our government a righteous solution. But you know what we did? Unfortunately, we didn't do that. We did what we usually always do when it comes to the, Ro to the Soviets or the Russians. We say, whatever the Russians can do, we can do better. And out of national pride, we started Project Stargate, which was our attempt at hiring psychics, bringing them into government, you know, and taking this approach of using the occult to try to gather intelligence on the Soviets. Now, <clears throat> Stargate, Project Stargate, and I think it was interesting in that that was the original program name that had the, the name Gate in it. Because what happened with Stargate, a gate was open to darkness over the United States. It just was. Now, the program lasted 23 years, and taxpayer dollars paid for it. It was a secret program. It's declassified now, but it ran for 23 long years. It was also under the program name Project Sunstreak, Project Grill Flame, Project Looking Glass, and an another few program project names that uh, I won't mention here. But we did the same thing. We, we took some guys that had psychic abilities we signed them up, gave them security clearances, and put them in an abandoned barracks on the backside of Fort Meade, right outside of Washington, D.C. And this old building began to house the operation of our government using demonic power for national security purposes. Now, this was a joint operation between the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, 
and the DIA. The DIA stands for the Defense Intelligence Agency. That is the intelligence part of our military apparatus. So this was a joint operation that was led by the CIA. So they were the lead agency in this joint operation. They had the lead. So when they would go into this room, they first of all realized that these, they called them operators, that would go into the spirit world and come into contact with demons. Now no one could see them but the operators when they would go into the spiritual realm. And then they would come into contact with these horrific entities no one else could see but them. And it caused such horror in those operators that some of them went completely crazy and lost their minds. Some were taken to Walter Reed Hospital outside of Washington and recovered. Others never recovered and were never heard from again. I met at the Pentagon in 2003 a guy who had been the CIA officer in charge of Project Stargate. It was a God-ordained encounter. Uh, I had gone to the Pentagon to brief the head of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, that was at that time headed up by a three-star Army general. And I had gone there to brief him on a completely unrelated matter. And the Pentagon's a massive place. I mean, it's huge. And you just don't walk into the Pentagon. You have to show up at a gate, show credentials, and then you're escorted by a military officer to the place where you're going and have an appointment or to give a briefing. So I had been escorted to this uh, three stars office and the same going out when you leave you can't just walk out you've got to be escorted it's a high secure area obviously so the three-star general that I had briefed that day assigned a man in suit and tie to escort me out on our way out it's a long walk <laughs> it's a huge place and on our way out we started talking about our life and I found out he was a Christian, and he found out that I was a born-again believer. And so we started to talk about the Lord. He said to me, Don, do you have a little time? I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee at the Starbucks here at the Pentagon. And we went and sat at Starbucks and sat there for a good hour and a half to two hours talking about the Lord. I'm going to call him Jim. That wasn't his real name, but just for his own protection, I'll call him Jim. I said, Jim, did you ever hear about Project Stargate? When I said Stargate, he nearly fell off his chair, right in the middle of Starbucks. Stargate at Starbucks. There's got to be a connection, right? I, he said, do you know about Stargate? And I said, yeah. I mean, it's open source media information. Yeah, everybody can... You can Google it and read all about it. I said, yeah, I know, and I have reasons to know what I know about it. He said, well, it may be hard for you to believe, but I actually was the CIA lead officer that supervised Project Stargate. So all the information I'm telling you comes directly from Jim, who was the lead agent 
that managed Project Stargate. He told me that this problem with the operators encountering these demon powers in the spirit realm so frightened them they had to build or bring in chairs into that old barracks building at Fort Meade and they looked like dental chairs. They bolted them to the floor and had straps. They would strap these operators into those chairs so that when they went into the spirit realm and encountered these demonic powers, they couldn't just jump and leave and run out. It was horrific. But here's the thing that happened. This is the point of entry on the timeline. December of 1972, it happened. When they were in one of these sessions, going into the spirit realm, he said, Jim said, I was there and saw it. He said, a demonic principality manifested physically in the room and all of us could see it. Up till then, the only thing was seen but was by the individual operators that were coming into contact with these demons, but nobody else in the room could see them. This time, one of these things showed up, and it wasn't like a misty apparition, like, you know, is that really there or not? No, it was, it was tangible. It was as real as you are sitting in your chair right there. And they all saw it. It was about eight to nine feet tall. He said, we were so frightened. He said, we didn't know what to do, how to respond, how to react. But he said, terror took over the room. Now, he had become a Christian since those days, Jim had. But he was not a believer in those days. And here's, here's the clincher of this story. The United States government made a covenant with that demonic entity. They entered a covenant and made a deal with the devil, literally. That in exchange for supernatural powers to enhance their remote viewing and astral projection techniques against the Soviets, that if they would, if that demon would give us an advantage over the Soviets that the U.S. government was giving rights over America to that entity. So, that was December 1972. In January 1973, specifically on January the 22nd, Roe versus Wade was decided in Dallas, and abortion was legalized in America. One month later. And here's the thing. Covenants have to be activated and sealed by a blood sacrifice. My view is that abortion became the first down payment and installment of innocent blood of the unborn to that entity of darkness that we entered a covenant with. And it was shortly after abortion was legalized that child trafficking became something that no one had ever heard of before. You see, because the blood of children, and I'm, I'm going to be careful what I say here because I know we've got some little ones in the room, so I'm going to try my best. 
But the, let me just say it like this. The blood of the innocent, the most innocent of all blood, which in my opinion is the blood of unborn children, is the most desirable of all blood and sacrifice to darkness. It was the God of Moloch in the Old Testament that demanded the blood of the most innocent, the little ones. Not only Moloch, but all the pagan gods had that in common. They all demanded that innocence of blood. And I think this whole thing of child trafficking, human trafficking, abortion, is all about payment from, the, from the America to the enemy. It's interesting, too, that Jim went on to tell me, because we were talking about the success levels of Project Stargate. Remember, it lasted 23 years. Well, any government program that lasts that long has to do real well to be funded. Well, it didn't do that well at all. In fact, Jim said their ceiling success rate was 15.7%, which isn't very impressive. I mean, what they would do is they would give a little hard in information, a little hard intelligence to the operator. He would go into the spirit world, encounter these demonic entities, and get further information from that demon about that subject, what was the target subject given to the operator by our officials. And he would come back and and talk about and give that information that he received from demons. Well, I don't know if you know anything about demons, but they're, they're all liars. You can't trust them. You know, I never understood why people that had deliverance ministry entered conversations with demons. There's two reasons not to do that. Number one, you're giving it authority to talk to it and let it talk to you. Number two, they're very unreliable sources of information because they're all liars. So don't ever do that, all right? So, so anyway, um, the ceiling success rate, the best that Stargate did in 23 years was 15.7%. You and I could guess more accurately than they produced using satanic power, right? To me, it speaks that... For the devil to be able to sustain that program for 23 years, he was in that program. He was, he was making sure that gate stayed open. I don't know any government program that's been able to go more than a year or two with that little of success. So it's an indicator of the demonic intervention to keep the gate open. So... If you want to know why we are where we are today as a nation, in large part, and I'm not saying that was the only point of entry of darkness, but it sure was a significant one. So if you understand, we're dealing now with a covenant made with the enemy by official government action. So then if you know that we're dealing with a covenant, then you can, you can come against it uh, in a way of understanding that we're dealing with a covenant. But guess what? The good news in the story is Jesus shed his blood to make a better covenant. So the power of Jesus' blood is able to conquer and undo evil covenants. Amen? 
So all of this trafficking of children globally began to snowball through the years because the gate was open. Now my my job in the government for 20 and, and Pastor Dave mentioned in is correct. I'm I'm winding down. I, I actually tried to retire a few times, and the Lord wouldn't let me. Uh, when Obama became president, I tried to retire. I'd worked for George Bush seven of his eight years as president. And when Obama came in, I thought I would be done because I loved President Bush. I have great respect for him. He's not a perfect man, but I've been with him in the presence of God. You can tell a lot about a man when he's in God's presence. I've been with President Bush when he's been in worship, you know, every Tuesday night, the White House traditionally has had entertainment night for the first family. They can bring entertainers, singers, musicians, actors into the White House just for the purpose of entertaining the first family and any of the staff that they would, the president or his wife would invite. There were times that George W. Bush would bring people like Michael W. Smith in. Instead of having, having a night of entertainment, there would be a night of worship. I actually saw President Bush introduce Michael W. Smith one night in one of those kind of gatherings similar to that. He said, he, he got up and he's, he's introducing Michael. He says, I love any man whose middle name is W. So George W. Bush introducing Michael W. Smith. And it was amazing because Michael comes up to a keyboard that was set up there and starts to play. And I mean the presence of God just fell in the room. It was amazing. He started singing that song that he wrote. I can't remember the name of it. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all powers the world has ever known. And I look over, and President Bush is worshiping God. There were no cameras allowed, no reporters. It was an absolute, closed, secure situation. And so I have a lot of respect for him. I worked for him. I did a lot of things to help him. Anyway, um, I'm just saying that at a point on the timeline, darkness gained an advantage in America. And we have to understand that so we know how to come against that. God has given us great authority, more than we realize. We as a church have become victims of mistaken identity and even stolen identity because the enemy is working real hard to keep you in the dark on who you are and in what God has invested in you. You see, it's not about you being a king. It's about God having people that are his kings to do his will and to accomplish his victories. He needs you and me. He could have done all this by himself, but he created us to need us in the process of undoing the powers of the enemy. Now, when the devil came into the earth, he starts building structures. Now, on this child trafficking and abortion situation, my view is it is the core evil in the world. What is done against the children is the core evil that all other evil connects to. It just is. It's the worst of all. 
And if, if you know that, then you know how to approach this and use that authority that God has given you to undo that, those structures. You know, I see what the devil has built as like a huge scaffolding system. You ever seen a building that has scaffolding on the side? In China, it's just phenomenal what they do with bamboo to build scaffolding up a, a store, uh, probably a 20-story or 30-story tall building. I think, Bill, you've probably seen it in China. And they lash these bamboo poles together, and that's a scaffolding that they use to, you know, do work finishing the outside of buildings. I see what the devil does is he builds scaffolding that all interconnects and that gets a, a synergistic strength from the connections. And if you had a scaffolding system that's held together with bolts and nuts, and if you knew where to take the bolt out, the right bolt, and you took that one bolt out, you could create a catastrophic failure of the structures of that entire scaffolding, and it would fall under its own weight. Well, I think God wants us to be the people who know which bolt to take out. That's why we need that kingly anointing. The kingly helps you to see what you need to see. Amen. There's so much more I'd like to tell you about tonight, and yet I, I want to really try to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. But my job in the government has always had to do with weapons of mass destruction. I've been involved in what we call counterproliferation of weapons of mass destruction. That means nuclear, neutronic, uh, biological, chemical, uh, directed energy weapons. In other words, my little part has been to try to keep those kinds of weapons out of the hands of the bad guys. And so that's been the scope of my responsibility through the years, right? So one day I'm sitting at my government desk and I'm, I'm looking through reports that have been brought to me. And here's how it kind of works. You, you get a report and you look and see if that is pertinent to a situation you're working on. And if it's not, you pass it on to someone who would have responsibility in that area, right? And that's how, that's the compartmented process is, is uh, you work within the lane of your expertise or your assignments. So that particular day, I, I get a file that has to do with child trafficking. And I just immediately thought, that's not within the scope of my responsibility. However, I really have a heart for that. Our daughter, Julie, and her husband, Kenny, head up a ministry of tra trafficking uh, to combat child trafficking called For the Silent. So my daughter has carried on that vision for coming and putting a dent in that industry. By the way, did you know that child trafficking globally became the world's most lucrative financially profitable industry in the entire world, illegal industry. So eight years ago, it bypassed illegal drug trafficking by far. So if you are a bad person and you want to make a lot of money fast, don't even think about selling cocaine on the world market. Sell the little ones. 
Because in some cases, you can resell them again. You make a lot more money. The war in Ukraine has a lot to do with the fact that Ukraine has been the world's number one nation to host child trafficking. 85% of child trafficking in the world has in some point in the process gone through Ukraine. Now, I'm not talking about the people of Ukraine. They're wonderful people. I love them. I've been there many times. I'm talking about the government of Ukraine that has been complicit in this industry of child trafficking. They've not only allowed it and turned the eye to look away and let it happen, they've gained profits financially from supporting it. Well, in my view, that's a real strike against the government of Ukraine. So a lot of what's going on in Ukraine tonight is what I think is God's judgments being released against the government. And I'm not talking about the people of Ukraine. I'm talking about the government. So I get this file that has to do with a child trafficking case, and I'm about to put it on the other side of my desk to hand it off to the Crimes Against Children division of the FBI. They have a whole division that deals with this stuff. And the Holy Spirit speaks to me before I lay it on the other side of my desk. He says, no, I want you to deal with this. I uh, promptly explained to the Lord that that didn't fall within my scope of duty and responsibility. He says, it does now. And I said, why? Because there are people that do this and deal with this. This doesn't have anything to do with what I do. He says, it does now. He said, I need you to deal with this. I need the apostolic authority that I've given you to adjudicate my righteousness into this matter that matters to me. And in the fear of God, I promptly brought that file back into the center of my desk and I threw myself into the middle of that case. In sheer obedience to God. At that moment, I realized how important this matter is to the Lord. And how that as the core evil in the earth that supports all the structured darkness that connects to that, that God wanted me to be involved so he could bring a, a structural fracture to the enemy's kingdom. So as I begin working on that case, by the way, I'm going to tell you a couple of names. It's okay because um, it's public knowledge anyway. If you, if you want to Google it on the internet, you can read all about it. There's a man who is a famous fashion designer named Peter Nygaard who is also known as the Canadian Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein and Nygaard were kingpins of this evil empire in the earth. They each had their structured darkness that they operated over. Interestingly, they had their own aircraft. Both of the airplanes flown by Epstein and Nygaard were... Boeing 727 airplanes, exact same models. 
And they stripped them down and built brothels and torture chambers in the back end of those two airplanes. Because those men learned that they could fly at 35,000 feet in international airspace, do bad things to the little ones, and get away with it because the lines of jurisdiction were blurred just enough by being at that altitude and in international airspace. So this is one reason they were able to get away with this for so long. Now, as I started working on this case, I'll be honest with you, I had to look at things, read things, watch things, and interview victims that I wish I had never heard or seen. And just to be completely honest, I had to go for some counseling, Pastor Dave, because of the trauma that just the horrific things done to these little ones had been done, and I was having to deal with this firsthand. But I knew the power and authority of God was given to me to accomplish this mission, to bring down the kingdom of Peter Nygaard. Peter Nygaard was a famous fashion designer. In fact, my wife, when she found out I was working on this case, she wanted to go to her closet and get all of his, you know, she had dresses and clothes with Peter Nygaard's name. She wanted to throw them all away. I said, honey, just cut the labels out. Don't throw the clothes away. But she didn't want to have anything to do with anything he had to do with. Now, when I talk about trafficking, I'm talking about, and, and again, I'm careful what I'm saying here, the abduction, the sexual abuse, the ritualistic torture and satanic sacrifice of these little ones and the subsequent drinking of blood components, which is true. It happens. The darkest of dark evil you could ever imagine. And so I engaged this. I said, Lord, if you want me to do this, you're going to have to give me favor. I started looking for sources of information. Did you know God led me to a person who had a laptop computer with all of the incriminating evidence against Peter Nygaard? It was in Europe, but I met the man who had control and access to it. Met with him one day in a North Dallas pizza restaurant. He had security men everywhere. I had my security guys. We walked in that restaurant at 3 o'clock on an afternoon when all the lunch crowd was gone. There was an 18-year-old young girl that was the hostess. All these guys come in with guns and bulletproof vests on, and she, she didn't know what to think. She said, I can't call the cops because I think they are. But we occupied that restaurant. We had our security guys scattered all over that restaurant providing security. I met with this man. He wanted millions of dollars from the U.S. government to give us that laptop. This laptop contained videos that were secretly recorded on board Nygaard's airplane because of a woman that was the handler of these children she becomes so disgusted with what she saw was going on, there was a fiber of her conscience still alive in her, and she hid cameras, secretly recorded the incriminating evidence, and all of that was on this laptop. I looked at this man 
across that table, and I said, I'm not going to give you one penny. You're going to give it to me because it's the right thing to do. He looked at me, and he looked at the guys that were on his team, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, you're right. I'm going to give it to you for nothing because it's the right thing to do. So I was shocked that it even came out of my mouth. I, I'm kind of a pretty nice guy. My wife will tell you I'm generally a pretty nice guy, but I can be really uh, like a lion when I need to be. I was kind of being a lion that day with this guy. I said, you're going to give it to me without us paying you one penny. And I said, I want it sooner rather than later. So the day came. He had to get it from Europe to Houston, Texas. And finally, it came into his possession. And the day came that he, he was going to hand it off to me in another restaurant in Dallas. I think we scared the girl at the front desk of that one restaurant, so we made an appointment to meet in another restaurant. We had all these guys with guns, and, and I'm sitting there, and I've got an agent to my right, and uh, another one across the aisle in a booth and here comes his assistant but not him and he has nothing in his hands he comes and he sheepishly says to me my boss has changed his mind he said I told him sit down across we're in a booth and that spirit of the lion came on me and I looked at that assistant and with all the boldness I've ever mustered in my life and it wasn't me it was the anointing of God. I looked at him and I said, you're going to give me that laptop or your boss is going to have a very bad day. I said, I'm going to send a tactical FBI team into his home and into his business and we will get that laptop. He promised me to give it to me and he needs to keep his word. This man was shaking. I was so it was anger, but I think it had to do with some righteous indignation. This was important. This is to bring down a kingdom of darkness, of the core evil in the whole earth. I was so strong, my, my, my buddy, my agent that was next to me, he was calm and trying to calm me down. Man, I was about to pull my gun out and shoot this guy under the table. And I would have shot him in a very sensitive place, too, by the way. Anyway... We wanted to get this to Congress. Louis Gohmert, Congressman Louis Gohmert in Texas, is a friend, and he was making arrangements for us to take this into a closed session of Congress to show them the contents of the videos. He never really had to do that, but he was willing to do that because I wasn't sure how I could trust the chain of command because you can imagine how many people would want to Squelch this and stop it because of the implication of the people on the videos. Get it? So my wife and I were in Los Angeles, California, and I was teaching. Uh, Sean Boltz and Jack Deere and I were doing a conference. <laughs> it was a Chinese leaders conference in East L.A. I mean, go figure. And uh, in one of the sessions, uh, we were driving from our hotel back to the conference center, and we passed an old 7-Eleven store. And the Lord said, look at that old 7-Eleven store. And I said, I've seen old 7-Elevens before. He said, but look at this one. I'm driving. I'm trying to keep my eyes on the road. 
And I look back, and the old 7-Eleven, do you know what a 7-Eleven is? I grew up with those. So that was really the only convenience store we had in the 60s, right? But there was an old sign for 7-Eleven at this one, and it had the old motto of the 7-Eleven. Does anyone know what it was? Oh, thank heaven for 7-Eleven. They don't let them put them on those signs anymore. But in those days, the old days, that was 7-Eleven's number one motto. Oh, thank heaven for 7-Eleven. And I see it, and I'm going, oh, that's so cool. The Holy Ghost says to me, I'm going to do something on 7-Eleven you're going to thank heaven for. This was in June that this happened. Months had gone by, no laptop computer. I'm almost ready to give up ever getting it from this guy. One month later, on 7-11, I thanked heaven for what God did because it was on that day the computer was walked into the Attorney General of the United States. Charges were filed. Jeffrey, I mean, uh, Peter Nygaard was arrested on those charges and is sitting in a prison in Montreal, Canada tonight with no hope of ever getting out. A whole kingdom collapsed. A whole kingdom, a substructured kingdom of darkness came down. So we filed federal charges to extradite him back to the United States, to New York. And the Canadians, they decided they would file their own child trafficking charges. And so they did and are holding him in Canada, awaiting a 20-year sentence. Well, he's an 83-year-old man, and he's never going to live for 20 years to even face our charges. But my point to you is this. God is on a mission, and it's a mission to annihilate the darkness that is within your jurisdiction and mine. How much authority do you have? How much operational authority do you and I have? It extends all, what, all the way to the boundary of your assignment. It's a Bible word called metron, measured out. So God gives you authority to operate, to, to succeed in every assignment he gives you. All the way to the boundaries of those assignments. You have full operational authority. But he needs you to believe who he is in you and who you are in him. So also around this time period, there was another guy named Keith Ranieri, who was the head of a sex cult in Los Angeles called Nexium. And an actress named Mac was his assistant. And this was, again, trafficking of underage as well as actual adult-aged women, and Keith Ranieri was the guy that would brand his initials into the girl's abdomen. It was a very evil, again, another substructure of this evil empire of sexual trafficking. And guess what? He got busted. Allison Mack got busted. Now, Keith Ranieri tried to escape by going to Mexico. 
He crossed the border, and guess what? The white hats of the FBI went right in after him and drug him back across the border. And he's serving a 23-year sentence without any hope of parole. Jeffrey Epstein is another one. That whole kingdom has come down. Galene Maxwell, his female procurer of children that worked for Epstein, she was in her own right a king of that dark empire. She had her own, it wasn't just being an accomplice to Epstein, she had her own system or network of trafficking going on. And no one could find her. And God helped us to find her. We helped the FBI find her location outside of Washington, D.C., and today she's sitting in prison. And thank God for the federal judge sitting in New York State that denied her a retrial. So once again, these kings of the dark empire of the greatest, deepest, darkest evil are coming down one by one, one by one. You know, the airplanes... I mentioned Epstein's airplane and Nygaard's airplane. They were both impounded by the government and recently were destroyed. And I actually have a video of Nygaard's 727 being clawed by a front-end loader, torn to pieces, into scrap, never ever to be used to harm a child again. You know, in the investigation, I was actually the lead investigator on the Nygaard case. And in the process of my investigation, we researched the history of that airplane. All airplanes have a tail number. It's like a license plate on your car. And you can trace it all the way back to Boeing or whoever the manufacturer was, who was the original purchaser of that aircraft from Boeing. And do you know who the original purchaser was? Nigeria Airways, which is interesting because having lived in Nigeria and familiar with the culture of Nigeria, most airplanes purchased by Nigerian airlines are dedicated to the devil and witches come on board and make devotion of that aircraft for the purpose of financial gain. So that airplane from its beginning was dedicated to darkness. So it's no wonder how the enemy ended up using it. So <clears throat> use your authority in your situation. There's no limit to what God can do if we'll just believe. Back to Nigeria, um, when God began to teach me about authority, it was when I was a missionary in Nigeria. There was a village called, and I can't even pronounce the name of it, to this day, but I call it the Crocodile Village because this particular town had worshipped the crocodile for centuries, over 400 years. The crocodiles would come out of the river that was a small river that passed through the village. It would come out, they worshipped the crocodile as a king. When one would die of natural causes, they would bury it like a king in a casket fitting for a king and would use days and days to mourn the death of that crocodile. The law of the village was you could never harm the crocodile, and even when they would come up out of the river and roam through the town, no one could 
try to stop it, and even if it tried to take someone, like even a child, no one could stop it. In fact, it was considered an honor if the crocodile would eat one of your family members. Well, I heard about the crocodile village and that there was no church there and the gospel had never been preached there. And so, I don't know what it is about the Lord, but he gives me hard cases. He just does. I'm still waiting on a call to Hawaii or better, Lake Como of northern Italy. I'm still waiting on a call. But God just sends me to hard things. I guess because he thinks I just don't know better than to accept the assignment. But yet, the crocodile village had never heard the gospel. So, not knowing any better, I decided to take the gospel there. Now, I want to tell you what I've always done through the years, even to this day. If I'm going to preach in a village, whether it be in Mexico or you know, Africa, some African nation, I learned this, that I would always go to the chief of the village to get his permission before I would preach the gospel. Because he was the civil gatekeeper of that village. I didn't have to do it, and most missionaries don't do that. But I would go to them because I found that if I got the blessing and permission of the chief, I had a lot more authority than if I didn't have it. And sometimes, interestingly enough, the chief was also the witch doctor. And all the years I've done this, I've never had one say no. I don't think they understood what they were getting themselves into, but so did we with the Crocodile Village. We went to the chief. He gave us permission. Well, the witch over the village was infuriated because the chief gave us permission, gave the white man permission to come and tell their people about our God. She was irate, threatened the chief, and yet the chief had already given us his permission, and so they made a covert plan together that when I came to preach in the crusade, they were going to kill me and feed me to the crocodiles as a sacrifice. Well, that didn't work out. Like Dr. Phil says, how's that working out for you? Didn't work out. We ended up going there on a Friday afternoon. The plan was this, to preach the Word of God to them Friday night, Saturday night, and then from the converts of the crusade, we would plant a new church with those converts on Sunday morning. So on Friday night, we're there, and uh, Nigeria sits right on the west coast of Africa. And it was common during the rainy season uh, for typhoons or hurricanes to come in from the ocean inland. And I'm standing in front of this little platform. We've got these African brothers and sisters worshiping God on the platform. Everything ought to start with worship. Everything should end with worship. And so they're singing to the Lord, and that music is what draws the people in. They don't wear wristwatches. They don't know. You can't say at 7 o'clock we're going to start the meeting. They come when they hear the music. But oddly enough, nobody had come. What we found out later, the chief and the witch had threatened the whole village, don't go to the white man's crusade. 
If you do, you're going to be in big trouble. So nobody went. And it's just me and my team. And, and, uh, but as we're worshiping the Lord, I look off in the distance and I see these huge black clouds forming over the ocean, coming our direction. And the winds were blowing, and as it got within about a half mile of where we were, you could literally see the winds whipping side to side the palm trees like little blades of grass, back and forth, and it was heading directly toward us. Now, the thing that in Nigeria or in Africa, you don't want it ever to rain on your parade or on your crusade because they do not like to get wet. It makes them feel cold, so it's the worst thing that could happen. So I'm concerned, and yet I'm going, Lord, you're going to have to do something about this. And it got closer, and a quarter mile away, the, the clouds split. It was a typhoon that divided, and it literally closed in around us and closed in on every side. And it began to, like a monster, begin to swallow the whole village. Rain was falling, sheets of rain, winds were blowing, and... Everything was getting closer and closer. And I said, Father, you've got to stop this storm. And you know what the Lord said to me? As clear as a bell, he said, don't ask me to do what I have given you the authority to do. You stop it. That's what he said. I said, me? He said, yes, you. And I remember earlier that week, driving to an intersection in the town that we lived in, there were no stoplights in our town, so the rule of the road was when you come to an intersection, whoever's in the largest vehicle gets to go first. And it works amazingly well. But on certain days of real heavy traffic at the main intersection in the town, they would put a little traffic policeman, usually about this tall, black uniform, white gloves, and a white hat, on a box. They had to build a box for him to stand on so the cars could see him. And that particular day, I was in the traffic watching this little police officer, no gun on his side. He's throwing up his little white hand, stopping huge, you know, trucks that would screech to a halt until he waved them on through. And that all came back to me at that moment at the crusade. The Lord said, do you believe I've given you more authority than even that policeman? I said, in the spirit, yes, I do believe that. He said, then you stop the storm. And before I knew it, I threw both hands up and out toward the storm that by that time had encroached up to 75 feet from the crusade platform. It was raining in every part of the village, but right where we were having the crusade. It was like God put an umbrella up. And the people were getting drenched in the rain and actually ran to the crusade to get out of the rain. It was amazing. The whole village came to the crusade. And we're still worshiping the Lord. And God held that rain and that storm in a place of a 75-foot radius for two and a half hours. The witch that made the deal with the devil... Uh, she was standing under the little tin roof of her house just a few hundred yards away, and she was watching the whole thing because she had fasted to the devil for three days to bring a storm to interrupt our crusade. 
when she saw what God had done, she ran through the rain. There was a little African pastor to my left. She grabbed him by his shirt and started shaking him and shouting in her language, I want to know the God who did this. And he led her to the Lord, which made her the first convert of the crusade that made her the first member of the new church that we planted on Sunday morning. And we are still in worship. We hadn't preached anything. We had been worshiping. Well, guess what? God came to that village, the Crocodile Village. Today, it is one of our strongest churches in all of Africa. No longer do they worship the crocodile. They worship Jesus. But you see, the turning point was when I realized, wait a minute. God said, I need to stop this storm. You know, there's just times when you have to take some action, and God will back you up. But we take a defensive posture so often, and we, we kind of hold the fort till Jesus comes. I, I was raised in the Baptist church. We had that in our Baptist hymnal. Hold the fort till Jesus comes. Hold the fort till Jesus comes. That was a great old song, but lousy theology. Nowhere in the scripture do I see that we're to hold the fort till Jesus comes. It says, occupy. Jesus said, occupy till I come. It's a, a tactical advancing military term that you take back what the enemy has and you keep advancing forward. That's occupying until he comes. So, sorry, I get a little excited. Thanks, Bill. I'll pay you later. So running up to 2017, President Donald Trump becomes our president. I had the privilege of serving him for his uh, first term. And uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea is like a little kid that throws fits. And he starts shooting missiles toward Japan and over Japan toward us. And we call it Kim Jong-un is throwing his toys out of his crib again. Well, Donald Trump had had enough of that. And so I was running intelligence from South Korea to Washington to brief the president on the current conditions of the military weapons systems developing by North Korea. In fact, you may remember he had a summit in Singapore with Kim Jong-un that was highly successful. I was running a lot of the, the, the prep that made uh, President Trump ready to go to the negotiation table to, with Kim Jong-un. In other words, we equipped Trump with all the latest intelligence of the North Korea missile program. And he used that as leverage to put Kim Jong-un in his place. So that had happened, but then that agreement of Singapore began to slip, and Kim Jong-un began to do things breaking that agreement with our nation. So things got really bad again, and so Kim Jong-un is threatening now to start firing artillery cannons onto Seoul, South Korea, just across the DMZ is South Korea, Seoul, the capital. And 
the, 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 our assessment has always been the missiles are one thing to be concerned about, but the greatest concern are the artillery cannons of North Korea. They're embedded in solid granite mountains that point right to Seoul. Massive cannons that have blast doors that open when they fire and shut quickly after they fire and are reloading those cannons. They have thousands of these cannons pointing from North Korea into Seoul. That's our greatest concern for the safety of South Korea. A CIA assessment is that in a, in a uh, war with North Korea, two million people would die in the first three hours of an attack just in Seoul. So President Trump does this. He's not going to take this from Kim Jong-un. And so Trump orders the U.S. Navy to send three battle carrier groups and park them on the front door of North Korea. And we have probably 20 U.S. battle carrier groups. That's not just one, but several aircraft carriers and a bunch of surface ships, a bunch of submarines, and a whole lot of Tomahawk missiles. That's a battle carrier group. It's massive. It's an armada. And we have about 20 of those that I know about. He rolls three of those out of Japan and Guam and sets them right at the door of North Korea. And he's ready to launch a preemptive military strike on North Korea with nuclear-tipped Tomahawk missiles. Already the targets have been programmed into the missiles. We're going to take out the missile facilities, the nuclear weapons facilities, and all of those cannons, those artillery cannons. And so somebody in Washington gets the bright idea that I need to go over there one more time and bring the latest intelligence back from our sources in North Korea that we had developed. And so I'm in a briefing, and they're saying, the president's about to pull the trigger, but they want you to go over there. I said, I'm not going over there if he's going to pull that trigger. And I had to get a gentleman's agreement with the U.S. government that the president would not launch that attack until I was out of Korea in international airspace coming home. So I'm there in Seoul at the presidential hotel in downtown Seoul, I'm on the 24th or 25th floor of the side of the hotel that's facing toward the north, North Korea. So I'm seeing mountains, and I know just on the other side of that mountain is North Korea. And I'm, I'm praying, and I've, I've done my job, and I'm waiting for the next day when I'm flying out, and I've got everything I need to present to the White House. And I'm looking out that window, and I'm looking down onto the streets below, 24, 25 stories down, and I see a small group of South Korean school children dressed in bright yellow uniforms. And they're skipping along the sidewalk like they don't have a care in the world. And I realize the casualty that would result of an attack by North Korea on Seoul, that those children could be the casualties of a war. Well, I got my hands on that plate glass window facing to the north, and I said, God, you have to stop this war that is out of season. See? And I heard an all-familiar voice 
that I remember from Nigeria. Don't ask me to stop a war that I've given you the authority to stop. You stop it. I don't like it when God talks to me like that. Makes me nervous. But I remember the crocodile village. That he did it then, why wouldn't he do it now? And so I start commanding a war that is out of season to stand down to save little school children skipping along in their bright yellow little uniform. And you know what? I got back, I got, got into international airspace, and there, weren't, there wasn't a launch order from the president. He waits till I get what I had to him. And things actually got worse for a few weeks after that. And then all of a sudden, things calmed down. And Kim Jong-un dared not to provoke the United States because we had a president that had the guts to defend our nation and our allies. But it was a picture of authority being operated in. Operational authority. Amen? So, one last story. One more. I promise this is it. One more. You got time for just one more? I know. I'm following your example, Bill. This is all your fault. There's a wonderful nation in West Africa called Ghana. Ghana, West Africa. Turns out that I was given some responsibility of monitoring Al-Qaeda movement. Al-Qaeda is a radicalized Islamic group out of the Middle East. And what they were doing is they were moving into West Africa because they thought and realized they could recruit terrorists in the young teenagers and preteens of African boys because they learned they could give an AK-47 to a 10-year-old with a box of bullets and $100, and he would do anything you told him to do. So Al-Qaeda was moving their Middle Eastern operations down into West Africa. They also mistakenly thought that our satellites could not see them under the cover of jungle, because remember they had been out in the desert open areas running their, their camps, their training facilities. They knew we could watch them from our satellite surveillance. What they didn't know is they couldn't hide under the jungle of the canopies of trees because our thermal imagery capability looks right through the jungle and we can see the heat plumes of the discharge of weapons as they're training. So we saw this encroachment of Al-Qaeda right down into northern Nigeria and northern Ghana. Ghana was being led by a president by the name of President John A. Kufour a Christian president who had taken Ghana out of poverty into a progressive, prosperous nation through righteous governing, a godly man, a real statesman, if you will. So I happened to have someone that gave me some intelligence that had been ganged uh, out of northern Nigeria, or northern Ghana, rather. It was an Al-Qaeda plot to assassinate President Kufour. Because the, the, the plan was if they killed this Christian president, the vice president who's a Muslim will take power and Ghana will fall de facto into the hands of radical Islam. 
So that was the plan. There was a military officer on the presidential staff. We had his name. We knew him by position. And so I have all this, and I go to brief President Kufor on this plan. He doesn't know why I'm coming. He just knows some government guy's coming to talk to him. In the course of his people talking to my people, I let him know, because I had gotten the background on President Kufor and knew him to be a believer. I said, sir, or told his people to tell him, I was also a believer. Look forward to meeting him. He still didn't know why I was coming. But he sent a word back to our people and said, by the way, since Don is a believer, when he finishes the briefing he wants to have with me, would you please ask him to pray for me? And of course I said, yes, I'd be honored. So I went over there to Accra, Ghana, to the, what's called the castle. It's the presidential palace of Ghana. And I do security assessments for presidents. In other words, when I, when I left the public road and went into the presidential compound, I'm counting cameras, guns, armored vehicles, and soldiers because I'm assessing the security of that particular president. Well, this president was dearly loved and cherished by his people. He didn't feel threatened. The guy before him that was a president had tanks all over the compound of the presidential palace. He was paranoid because he was an evil guy. President Kufor loved his people, and they loved him. He did away with all of that security. So I counted maybe five or six cameras, a couple of soldiers with old, worn-out AK-47s, and just not a lot of security at all. Then I found out the president was driving around in a presidential limousine, Mercedes, not armorized, with, with four motorcycle cops two in the front and two in the back, and that was his security. So when I briefed him about this plot, he was skeptical, but when I told him the name of the military major on his presidential military staff, that convinced him because we had the name. He had suspected him. And so I finished the briefing. I gave him all the details of this plan. We didn't know how it would happen or even when it would happen, but we knew it was, it was imminent and that he was in grave danger. And so at the end of the briefing, he, I stood up with President Kufor, and he said, Don, would you pray? Now, here's a perfect example of the interfacing of the kingdom of God and even the gifts of the Holy Spirit into governmental settings. So I'm praying for the president. And when I'm praying, the Holy Spirit's giving me a word of wisdom, which is not like a word of knowledge, but it's supernatural wisdom to know what to do with the information you have, even if it's a word of knowledge. So it's the next step, how to react to the word of knowledge or respond to information. And the Lord told me to tell the president five bullet points of actions he should take that will preempt an assassination attempt. So when I said amen, I said, Mr. President, may I tell you what I just think I heard the Lord say for you. He was so interested. He said, please tell me. I told him five things. And one of those things was to add armored military vehicles, one in front of his limousine and one directly behind, leave the motorcycle cops there, but put these armored vehicles, one in front, one at, at the back. That's all. Well, I didn't know if he would take that advice 
but he did. He got on the phone. When I walked out of his office, he implemented all five action points. Two months later, an Al-Qaeda assassination team shows up in Ghana with the mission to kill the president so that Al-Qaeda could take over Ghana by de facto, by the removing of a Christian president so the vice president, a Muslim, could take power. They were hiding in the jungle beside the main road that led back into the presidential palace. They stepped out as the president's limousine and motorcade rolled by, about to go into the castle. And this team, one of the men, one of the terrorists, fired an RPG shoulder-mounted rocket toward the presidential limousine. But because he had added the armored vehicle at the rear and front, the RPG rocket hit the military vehicle instead of the presidential limousine. Had it hit the limousine, the president would have undoubtedly been killed because his car was not armored. It killed several of his soldiers that were in the, med uh, in the uh, armored vehicle, but he was spared. The front forward uh, military escort and the motorcycle guys in the front rushed him into the safety of the palace, and he was kept secure. The next day, he calls to thank me for saving his life. I was quick to tell him, Mr. President, you know that that was God that saved you. It wasn't me. He said, I know. He's got this kind of deep voice. He said, I know, but God's got to use flesh and blood sometimes. And you're a friend forever because you saved my life. Then he calls President Bush who I guess they're friends, and George H.W., President George W. Bush's dad, knew this president. They were like longtime friends. And President Kufor calls George W. and says, thank you for sending Don over and help me be saved from an assassination. Well, President Bush didn't know I even went over there. He knew who I was, but he didn't know I had that assignment. And so the next thing I know, the Secret Service is contacting me because President Bush was about to do a West Africa tour where he was actually going to go and visit President Kufor and some other presidents. And they wanted my recommendation on places the president should go and not go. So that door opened other doors. But my point is, God saved the life of a Christian president so he could continue to rule and govern righteously. And now a new president is sitting in the president's office, and he is even a stronger believer than President Kufor. I prophesied over him when he was a candidate that he would become the next president, and God did. You know what happened? I prayed the king's anointing to come upon him. I had my hand on his head. He said, I felt the warm oil of the king's anointing came. He won an overwhelming victory and is serving his second and final term as president. Now he wants me to come in May to meet with him to introduce me the next guy that he's wanting to become the president after him. They have a two-term limit just like our, we do with our president. So we're trying to build, since 2003, we're building a line of presidential succession of righteous presidents in Ghana. So Ghana, which has now become the most prosperous of all West African nations, the safest of all, and the most stable of all nations. Because when righteousness rules, the nation is blessed. Amen? Amen. Can you go ahead and fire up that music? Do you still have that, that link that I sent you? 
You guys have been great tonight and uh, appreciate it. I'm going to, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask Bill Byer to come up. But I'd like to pray for you. <sighs> Father, you are worthy to have an ecclesia. You know what the word ecclesia means? Literally in the Greek, it means a council of government officials who are called out. Turn it down just a little. I was in Greece, Thessaloniki, sitting in a cafe on the street, and a bunch of Greek fishermen come in from fishing all night. They're drinking, they're smoking, they're speaking Greek, which I don't understand most of the time. But I hear them say, Ecclesia, Ecclesia, Ecclesia. And every time one of them would say, Ecclesia, they got angry. And I leaned over to Pastor Paul, my host, and said, Paul, how come these guys are talking about the church? They're surely not believers. He said, oh, he laughed at me. He said, they're not talking about the church. They're talking about the government of Greece because the word is the same in Greek for government or church. That's how God looks at you and me as an ecclesia, called out ones to govern, a council of his government officials. Don't you want to be that for him in every situation you find yourself in? Well, Father, I pray that you make it so. I pray that tonight we would be encouraged, our faith would be built, that as dark as darkness ever gets, your bright light shines brighter than darkest at its darkest moment. I thank you, Lord, the end of the Bible says we win. And that the Word says we are more than conquerors. Not us, but you through us. You're just looking for flesh and blood like a glove that you put your hand into and start moving your fingers through. We're the glove that you just picked up off of the dirty ground and you dusted us off and you put your hand into us. And you move your fingers to adjust even the course of nations. Stopping wars that are out of season. Bringing righteousness into the place that you want it to be. So I pray you find some gloves to put your hand into through us tonight. Everyone, you have an assignment, a mission from God, and each of those assignments are of equal importance in the eyes of God. No matter who you are, no matter where you're assigned by the Lord, you have a crown on your head. You have a harp and a bowl in your heart. Worship, prayer, crowns of authority, a throne, a place of seated governmental authority inside your assignment. Start to rule from that. Humbly, not in arrogance, not in pride, not in force, but in humility. Like the Elders on their thrones, for off their thrones and on their faces, John said, casting their crowns before the King of all kings. Father, teach us how to steward and manage the authority that you have given us that cost Jesus his blood. That we walk in that 
with humility, but also with vision and purpose, intentional in fulfilling your call. Give victories in 2023 that we could not gain in 2022. Let this new season be a season of conquest. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. We yield ourselves to you, Father. We put ourselves at your pleasure. We serve at the pleasure of the God of all creation. Use us, Lord. I pray that the devil will lose his tactical advantage because of everyone sitting in this room tonight and even those that are watching online. We would be that church you said you would build upon the rock of revelation, of identification, of you and even of us. The gates of hell will not have the power to prevail against a forward-moving, marching ecclesia. We're not looking for a fight, but a fight has found us. The devil took the first swing. You have every right to swing back. But be led by the Spirit. Know where to deliver your punches. Don't use the shotgun method. You'll just make a lot of noise and tear up a lot of stuff and never hit the target. Let it become the sniper method. One shot, one kill. My wife says, don't use that illustration. That is, that is crude. But it's real world, real life. I'd rather be a sniper, one shot, one kill, than a guy that's just shooting up the whole town with a shotgun and hitting nothing, right? So, Lord, thank you for marksman accuracy. For this house moves into a new tactical position of governmental authority, of the implementation of the adjudication of heaven in earthly matters that matter to you, Lord. And I see a robe coming up on the state called Iowa. A robe of king's authority coming up on a state that will cause this nation to receive an alignment and even a course correction. I hear the Lord say that this state will be used to recalibrate a compass of direction for America. A compass that is spinning out of control and doesn't know where to stop because true north has been lost. But Iowa will be used by God to recalibrate a compass for a whole nation. And the needle will stop on true north because of this house and because of this state being governed by this governor. And we give you all the praise, sir. In Jesus' name, amen. Bill, would you come and minister? Two things. There's a testimony that's been bouncing around inside of my spirit now for about four hours and I felt like I'm supposed to release it tonight but because it's it's going to bring a restoration of hope in someone's heart tonight maybe more than one <clears throat> what my friend Don has been pouring out a 
these testimonies and of these declarations, really, um, it brings back to my thinking one of my favorite stories of all stories because God has so used it in my heart and my life. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was a, a man that is perhaps or arguably the greatest virtuoso violinist that's ever lived. His name was Nikolai Paganini. He had an affliction in his left hand. And the ligaments were too elastic. And what that gave him the ability to do, out of an affliction, there came this elasticity that he could reach notes that nobody else could reach. And so his compositions are the most difficult to play. And he was contracted to write a sonata for a very wealthy family and to, and to come to their, their estate and to perform it for a private audience of this family. And so he wrote the sonata. And the day came and all of the people came to the estate and they were so excited because the great Paganini was going to come and, and perform privately for them. And he gets there and he tunes his violin and, in, and everybody is seated and he starts playing this beautiful, beautiful sonata for this family. And as he's playing, he breaks a string. And then this, he continues to play and he breaks a second string. And he keeps playing and he breaks a third string. And he stopped. And he looked at the family and he said, Paganini on one string and finished the sonata on one string. I love that story because it's not the instrument, it's the master that plays the instrument. And when I think of my life, I think of Paganini on one string. You can take someone so broken that no one else can get any music out of him, but you can play a beautiful sonata with a life that's just yielded, an instrument that's just yielded. You may think yourself insignificant, but God does not. He loves you, and if you will just give yourself to him. Oh, but I've become a Christian. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. Just give yourself to him. Just give yourself. You don't know where he will take you. You don't know what he will do with you. You don't know that he won't stand you in front of kings. And it may be a king in a natural government, and it may be someone who is destined to be a king in the kingdom. Give yourself to him and let him play his sonata through you. 
And he will bring the music through your heart and through your life that will touch somebody else and will literally change their life. I have a friend. His name is David Kula. David Kula is a retired attorney from Chicago. And he was successful. His father was retired attorney from, I believe also from Chicago, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong on that, but it's not an important detail. And David gets converted. Truly, genuinely converted and filled with the Holy Ghost. He and another brother, another friend of mine have... Uh, ministry in Atlanta, Georgia to minister to people on the streets. And David was so concerned about his father because his father at worst was an atheist, at best was an agnostic. Hated religion or his perception of religion. And David and his wife would go to his father who was retired and living in um, Phoenix, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was Phoenix, wasn't it, Faye? <laughs> Thank you for your acknowledgement. It was Phoenix. And they would go there explicitly for the purpose of witnessing to his dad because he needed to have his dad pray the prayer. It was important to him because his dad was lost. And they would go and his dad would just get so raving, lunatic upset with his son and daughter-in-law. Veins popping out in the neck. Don't talk to me about this Jesus. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. And they just went faithfully year after year trying to win the father and to get the father to pray the prayer right and his father was getting older and older and older and they went and they took him to a five-star restaurant fine china crystal silver small intimate setting just maybe 10 or 12 um, tables in this restaurant, very exclusive, very expensive. And they get his dad there and they enjoying this wonderful meal and then they're going after him again. And they're, they're going to be faithful to get him to pray the prayer. And so they start in with him. And he gets angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. And finally, he just explodes. Takes the butt of his palm of his hand and slams it down on the table. Turns over the crystal. Everybody in the restaurant shuts up. And they're watching this man just go into a rage. And David and his wife, now they're very self-conscious about everybody in the restaurant. And the whole thing, now it's blown up into this giant scandal in this restaurant. And what was meant to be a nice evening and a nice meal turned into a terrible experience. 
And they tried, Dad, Dad, come on, just, just calm down, just calm down, it's okay. He says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus, and if there is a God, I'm sure that he's not this Jesus that you're talking to me about. Don't ever mention the name of Jesus to me again. I never want to hear that name the rest of my life. End of story. They get the car, they take him home. They're leaving the next day or so, go back to Atlanta. Inside of one month, if I remember this correctly, it could be two months, one, one month, two months, his father develops one of the fastest developing cases of Alzheimer's that they had ever seen. And he spirals into Alzheimer's world. And they go out and they're, they're trying to connect with him and there's no connection. And finally, it develops so fast and so overwhelmingly fast that the father has now, he is just, he is in Alzheimer's world and his eyes are totally, completely dilated, fixed. And he's a, he's a complete vegetable. He not only doesn't know his son, he doesn't even recognize human beings. He was in such a catatonic state that you could take and put his arm straight up and he would, and it would be, just be stuck there until you moved it. <coughs> and they would go and they would visit him. And it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so they would fly out and they would be with him and they would sit him on this sofa in the visiting area of this hospice, Alzheimer's hospice. They would sit him in the middle of the sofa and he and David would sit on one side and his wife would sit on the other side and they would lean forward and they would talk to each other because his dad was just sitting there looking straight forward, catatonic state, no eye movement, no lucidity in his face whatsoever. He's dead. He's gone. There's no hope. He never prayed the prayer. And they beat themselves for being a bad witness and for failing and not knowing what to do. But he loved his dad, and so they just kept coming. They would sit him in the middle of the sofa, and he and she would lean forward and look at each other, and they would have this conversation. And one day they were there, and all of a sudden, David's father's eyes start moving. And he starts looking around. And, and, and the color of his skin changed and, and the tonality of his skin changed and he became lucid. And David says, I think he's going to say something. I think, I think he's going to say something. And just like that, he was back. And he looked at David and he looked at David's wife and he said, I've been with Jesus. And everything's okay. And he's going to introduce me to the Father. And then in a split second, he's gone again. About a month later, He's there again in the center of the sofa. David and his wife are leaning forward, talking to each other, and suddenly his eyes begin to move again. 
and, and his face changes. And he becomes beginning to become lucid once again. And David says, I think he's going to talk again. And he comes back to reality as we know it. And David, David and his wife, they'd been, they'd been struggling with a decision that they needed to make in their ministry of to take one path this way or another path this way or just to stay the course. And they didn't know what to do. And they were struggling with it. And suddenly his father comes back and he's lucid and his eyes, his eyes are no longer dilated. He's back to normal. And his father speaks and he said, Jesus introduced me to the father. And now everything is wonderful. And oh, by the way, David, just stay the course. The father says, just stay the course. What you're doing is the right thing. You don't need to make the decisions that you've been struggling with. And that quick he was gone. Here's the deal. God can do what we cannot do. What Don was saying was absolutely 100%. God will not do what he gives us to do. And there are some things that we cannot do that only he can. And God gave this to my friend David. And I don't know if anyone here has family that has Alzheimer's. I hate that disease. My mother died with it. It steals. It steals the memories. It steals the personality. I don't know if there's anyone here that's had someone in your family that is struggling with it or has struggled and already gone. But I want to say to you something, that there is hope that even when you've given up hope, there is yet hope that Father can get through, that Jesus can get through, that Holy Spirit can get through, and God can make a difference in people's lives even when they're beyond our scope of theology. And He can reach the heart. And God gives hope where there is no hope. He gives hope to the hopeless. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God can take light and bring it out of darkness. In fact, it's a law. He commands light to shine out of darkness. And so if you're facing a hopeless situation tonight, if there are things that you're struggling with that they're just too big for you, and you don't know what to do with them. And decisions that you need to make that, that you don't have an answer for. Bring it to the Father. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Holy Spirit. Come and lay your burden down at His feet. And He will take it up when you cannot do anything about it. And He is able to do what we cannot do. And he will work a miracle. He will work a miracle. He will work a miracle. 
So Father, right now, tonight, I, I, I just lift every person in this house that has struggled with something hopeless. Maybe it's even a hidden thing that's hopeless. And, and they, just, they just have almost virtually given up hope over it. And I'm asking, Lord, for an infusion. I'm asking for an infusion of hope to come into hearts and to come into lives. I'm asking, Lord, that, 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 that you would begin to let hope seep into the empty void of hopelessness. And even as it is written that there is hope for a tree that has been cut down, that at the scent of water, it will spring forth again. I'm asking, Lord, that you will just begin to rain down in this house. Just begin to rain down hope. Just begin to rain down and fill every hopelessness in every single heart in this room. Breathe life again within us. And encourage us to the point where we then actually choose life. We choose life. We choose to believe you. We choose to re-engage. And we choose to come to the place where we are so utterly, completely dependent upon you that we, that we wait with our eyes fixed on you and we re-engage and we would receive hope and we would receive the peace that passes understanding that makes no sense at all and that we would begin to believe again whatever area that is whether it's for a parent or for a child of our family a son or a daughter of ours even, Lord, the hopelessness of people who have died and, and, and we had no answer for them. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to put hope back into our hearts. To trust you when it's beyond the scope of our control. And that you pour in healing and you pour in oil. The oil of your presence. Rain down, I pray. Rain down. Oh, love of God, rain down. And saturate and permeate every crack and crevice of our heart. And renew us again. And restore. 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 And help us to lift our eyes up above disappointments. So many disappointments in life. And I just hear the Spirit of the Lord saying, lift your eyes up above the shadows. Lift them up. He's waiting there. Lift your eyes up above the shadows and behold the 
king. Lift your eyes up and shout Hosanna like we were singing earlier this evening. Lift your eyes up and proclaim his name. Even as David long ago learned the secret of encouraging himself in the Lord. Declare the reality of God's faithfulness in your own ears with your own mouth. And trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Even if you feel like your life is a violin with three broken strings. Just put it into the hands of the master and he will finish the sonata. And he will make something beautiful. He will give you beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. He will give to you the oil of joy for mourning. And he will give to you the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And so put on the garment and receive the oil of his joy. And let him make it beautiful again. Let him make it beautiful again. Father, I thank you for this day, the whole day. You've been so precious. You've been so gracious. You've been so, 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 so kind. You've answered questions in this day and time. I've just seen, I've just seen in my spirit people that had question marks inside their souls. And I've, I've seen the, the dissipation, the removal of question marks. He didn't just give you an answer. He gave you the answer. We look for answers, and he gives the answer. Thank you, Father. You are, you are a good, good Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Lift your eyes up, beloved. Lift them up. It's not the end, it's the beginning. Long, long, long time ago, I took my Bible that some idiot, some theological idiot, had written at the end of the last chapter of the book of the Revelation, the end. And I'm thinking, dear God, how stupid can you get and still breathe? The end? Some people just need their theological panties twisted in a knot. Just to get their attention. Stop thinking those. That's so stupid. It's the beginning. It's the beginning for every one of us. I got to tell you this one. 
You perpetrated this. It may be my fault, but you perpetrated it. My wife and I, we had this wonderful old man, father, pastor in our life. and White hair. He was ministering in, in Taiwan. And he was sitting in Taiwan in a church that was so dead. He'd been invited to speak there, and he accepted it, didn't know them, showed up, and the songs that they were singing, they were dead. All the people, no, no offense to anyone in the room, of course, all the people had white hair. He had white hair. The service is dead. The atmosphere is dead. And he says in his heart, Lord, what in the world am I doing here? They're dead. The songs they sing are dead. I don't want to be here. I'm just too old, he said. And he hears this peal of laughter behind him. I mean laughter like, like you've never heard in all your life. I mean, it's so, it's, he thought it was somebody behind him that was laughing. And they were laughing, I mean, from deep, deep down in their belly, laughing. Ha, 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 you old. And he turns around and it's an angel standing there. And the angel looks at him and says, you, you, old. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Oh, and he's just like, the angel was just laughing like crazy. And so my pastor said to him, how old are you? A million years? Oh, yes, 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 a million years and more. Two million years? Yes, of course, a two million. Oh, yes, much more, much, much, much more. He quit at 10 million years. It's not the end. We're in the beginning. Some of us might be in the birthing canal. We're almost ready to be born. I think there's a reason why Peter used the term being born again. We're in the process. We're only beginning. You don't have to have all the answers. All you got to have is the answer. And his name is Jesus. Yeah? So let him do with you what he wants to do with you. He may take you to the ends of the earth. And he might leave you right in your neighborhood And you learn to love the people across the street. And you just might be their answer. And you don't know the end of that story. Because you don't know who they will reach. And you don't know. And it just takes on this exponential increase in our hearts and our lives. Don, you have any more? Pastor, come on. I knew it. If you'd turn in your Bibles. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead and stand up. 
God is good. Hey, we've, we have feasted all day. It has been so good. We want to close in prayer, but Mark and Melissa, why you guys come right over here? Don, I want you to pray for this couple. I just felt like you need to lay hands on this couple, so just go over there and get him to lay hands on you. And then, I don't usually do this, but Andy and Melissa, I want you to go over to this couple, and uh, I want them to pray for you. I believe that both these couples are, they share something in common. It's not the wife's name. It, I think God's doing some fresh things. So, Father, we thank you for all that you've done tonight, Lord, all throughout this day. And Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you've opened our eyes to what you've already given us. And Lord, I ask that by faith we would lay hold of it. Lord, we thank you for the word over this state and over this house. And Lord, we receive and we believe. Now, Lord, help us to exercise the authority you've given us. Lord, help us to cease asking you to do what you've assigned to us. Lord, we thank you for the days ahead. The days in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.